Dave here. A couple of things before we dive into the latest release. Another recording that was made earlier this year when a ton of the street theater community converged in Dubai for three different events that were being produced by Dolphin Creative. First, a big thank you to the people who helped make this episode a reality. Guy Collins stepped up to become an interviewer, Kim Potter handled the actual recording and created a preliminary edit, and Magic Brian took that edit and cleaned it up a bunch more before handing it to me for some final tweaks. This episode really was a team effort, and I'm grateful to everyone involved for jumping in and contributing to making it a reality. I also wanted to mention that a while back I was talking with Executive Director Lindsay Lindbergh. During our chat, I pointed her towards the Busker Hall of Fame website, and we ended up landing on the episode notes page for one of our recent episodes. Lindsay remarked that because she downloads the podcast via iTunes, she rarely makes it to the website to check out the supporting materials for each release. I imagine this is true for many of our listeners, so I'd like to encourage you to take the time to swing by the site and check out the bonus materials that are released with each episode. There's a whole ton of history there. All right, let's get to it. Because I remember the first year that I did Edinburgh, I drove up all the way from London. It's like a six-hour drive. And we got to the pitch, and you opened the car door for me. I said, Guy, welcome to Edinburgh. Do a show. And I literally got out of the car and did a show on the mound. And that, I don't think, would happen now. Wow, that can't happen. No. That no. was the old days. Yeah, we, you could park on the mound. You, you could. Know, but, yeah. weren't, weren't they good days? That Can, was fantastic. They were, are you making this up? I know. Are you, no, that, are you that trying happened. to tell me that you drove six hours to a city... Yeah. Someone opened the door and you just walked out and did a show. It was you that opened the door. That's against the law, guy. You broke the law. <laughs> that, I think you're making it all up. Oh, no. Because you yeah. didn't have a permit. Oh, no, we didn't have a permit. You didn't have insurance. We didn't have any insurance. By God, these I, know, I can, can you believe that, actually, that people used to do that. Just turn up at any city and do shows. Well, more or less. That sounds like a dream come true. Yeah. It yeah. sounds like a dream. Where did it all go wrong? <laughs> Where did it all go wrong? I know it. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the checkerboard guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. I mentioned off the top that this was another recording that we made in Dubai earlier this year three different festivals were taking place in March, and a who's who of street theater alumni were flown to the Middle East to populate the various events being produced by Dolphin Creative. For me, it was a chance to meet up and hang out with a ton of busking legends who spend most of their time in Europe, and today's featured performer, Silver, was one of them. I have vivid memories of finishing a show in Dubai and being greeted by a huge smile and a wave of positive energy as Silver walked up to me. It was clear that he was in his element, surrounded by members of our extended street performer family. We chatted for a bit and tried to figure out where and when our paths had crossed before, but couldn't quite figure it out. Not that it mattered, though, because we recognized immediately the connection that comes from being a part of the same tribe. Silver has spent over 30 years contributing to the art form. He's played pitches across Europe and has dedicated himself to embracing the unexpected in every show, allowing him to live a life that's filled with so many great stories from the pitch. So we're here at, this is day nine for me, at the uh, Dubai Marina Street Festival. Silver arrived yesterday, which was a pleasant surprise. Now, Silver is one of my oldest, oldest street performing friends. In fact, I first remember Silver before I was even a street performer when I took my first wife to Amsterdam to seduce her. 
I didn't know this. No, it's true. And I remember you in a coffee shop and you were dressed in a black boiler suit. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and you were just kind of leaned up against the side of the wall. This was before... Uh, I had the sex change. Well, obviously, before you had the sex change, you did look kind of sexy. And I just remember thinking, oh, I know that guy. And I didn't actually know you then. And then it probably wasn't until 1995 that we actually started talking to each other. And you tell me that now? Yeah, I tell you that now. Yeah. Right now. Yeah, You've right saved now. that for the last uh-huh. 25 years or something? I have saved that for You saw me in Amsterdam with my old black suit. I did see you in Amsterdam. With the cuffs and the two chunky belts. Yeah, I just remember yeah. this tall guy leaning up against the side in a coffee shop. Oh, it would be Hunter's Bar by chance. It possibly would be. I have mm-hmm. absolutely no idea. I was lost at the time. My first ever bar bill. Uh, that would have been in 1989. Yeah, I moved to Amsterdam, I think, 1988, 1987, 1988. Right, OK. And I'd been performing for two years then, but I guess you'd have been performing for several more years. So what year did you actually start performing in? What year? What year? Let's yeah. just... OK, then, how I got started was because I'm from Edinburgh, I lived in Edinburgh, power station guy, no interest in circus skills and all this stuff. And during the festival... Walking about, I saw this guy with a silver face doing the robotics thing, uh-huh. and he had a massive, massive crowd. And what year was this? 1986, could oh. have been 85, 86, and I saw this guy with a massive circle, and he had a silver face and suit on, and I just knew he was shit, and he was shit. But don't forget, I was a power station, I was an engineer, and he was shit. Uh-huh. But he had a massive age. Right. So maybe a year after that, I left the power station at the age of 22. Yeah. I'm up in my attic flat. I'm uh-huh. pacing up and down on a Friday night. No food, no fags. The mother of invention. That's right. Then what can I do? What can I do? And it just, I had this flashback about this guy having a massive age, a massive crowd. Yeah. And uh, that's, I got, all right, I'll go out and I'll busk. Yeah. So what I did was in the power station that these things called dust suits was a one piece white suit with a hood. Right. So I had that from the power station. Yeah. I bought white face paint uh, and, and white gloves and I started to busk. So what was your first show? My first show was in Edinburgh. It's a so place called the Grass Market. Did you actually do a show or did you just stand there? Like I just basically stood there. I never had any... I didn't have friends that were performing. I was just completely isolated. And I thought, right then, I've got this white dust suit, I've got white gloves, I've got, where can I go? And there's a pub in the grass market called the Black Bull. I think I've been there. So I put my boombox on the window outside the Black Bull on a Friday night and I busked and it started to rain after three songs. Oh. But in three songs, I'd made £15 and got a gig for the Saturday night to dance in a club. Fifteen pounds, that's... It was quite a lot then. I had no cash, so I went out and I got cigarettes, I bought food, and went, hey, I'm da- I'm, I've been asked, I'm getting paid to do my moves in, in a club. And that was the start of the That's how it started, yeah. Oh. So there was no influences, there was no do this, it was just, I hadn't eaten for two days, and what can I do? Right, okay, so after that, how long did it then take you to develop more of a show as opposed to just standing there? That was a general process. Again, being isolated, mm-hmm. uh, not being on a pitch, not being with other performers. Right. What happened was uh, I used to busk in Edinburgh in a shop doorway. Yeah. 
and I used to make, let's just say, £20 on a Saturday afternoon. Right. And uh, I went off to Amsterdam with four or five friends, and I started to busk on Dam Square and made three times what I would in Edinburgh. Right. Came back to Edinburgh, as I say, I didn't have, have a job, and basically I fucked off back to Amsterdam and didn't come back for a year. So how long did it take when you were right back in Edinburgh? How long did it take you to leave again for Amsterdam? Mm. I met up with my girlfriend who started to cry and say, we had something, we were... I went, yeah, we did, but I didn't come back for a year. I went back to Amsterdam and, st- and stayed there. Right. The lifestyle, the cash, and uh, came back and was performing in Edinburgh. So I would busk during the festival and then go back to the dam in a place called The Jungle, down at the mound. Down at the mound. The Jungle. Ah, in the good old days, Mm -hmm. before the regulations kicked in. So when I met you in, well, when I didn't know who you were, but when I saw you in 1989, by then you were doing a complete show? Yes. Yeah. And what were your show actually, what did it involve then? Was it the same as it is now? No, I used to have a silver face. <laughs> I always had a silver face for maybe 12 hours a day. Yeah. Didn't take it off, go to Dam Square, 12 to 5, dance outside the Amro Bank on the corner of Dam Square, come back, have a coffee, and then go to the Lexa Plane, the nighttime pitch. Yeah, and I would put on my silver face, and that would help to get an edge. Okay. So people would always see me with a silver face, and if they were wanting to get my attention, hey, silver man, silver man, and that got shortened to silver. We established you started in Edinburgh, and then Mm. just very briefly, and then you went to uh, Amsterdam. How long did you stay in Amsterdam initially? Oh, I, I moved about. I didn't have a home for two and a half years. I would go to Covent Garden. Yeah. I'd go to Paris. I'd go up you know, to Copenhagen and go down to... But, but I would always end up going back to Amsterdam. Yeah. And after two and a half years of constantly travelling, not even having an apartment, it right. really got to me. Yeah. And it was February, it was cold, I'm sitting in Amsterdam, and I didn't have my own bedroom for two and a half years, and it was doing my head in. Uh-huh. And because I always went back to Amsterdam, I started to know people, and a flat came up for grabs. Yeah. And... Part of the conditions was that there's a thing in Amsterdam called an oath, an overcomer, and basically you pay a deposit that you don't get back. So on the Friday, this flat came up and the deposit was maybe £300, and I was sitting with no cash. Right. And on the Monday, I had £300 to hand over. Excellent. And from then, I was there for 10 years. I, I was based there for 10 years. Yeah. And the other reason for Amsterdam was it's only two centimetres away from Paris. It's three centimetres away from Co- from Covent Garden. It's only four to Berlin. It's three centimetres. It's really central. Yeah. So contrary to popular belief, the reason why I lived in Amsterdam was it was really central. I could get to Covent Garden, I could get to the Pompidou, I could get to the Ramblas. Right. Brilliant. You've been to you've been to an awful lot of pitches. You've worked in Paris, Amsterdam, Barcelona, Berlin. 
Copenhagen, Helsinki, you name it. If yeah. it's in Europe, I've been there basically. Right, and you've seen an awful lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so in your travels? In my travels, yeah, the reason is because a lot of people would be going to Edmonton. These two words, Edmonton and Halifax, uh-huh. it's like having a Bible and going St. John and St. Peter. I never have been to Halifax, never done, you know, these big things that you should go to. Right. Because I would be basically shagging a girl from Barcelona. So I'd go to Barcelona and I'd be shagging a girl in Helsinki. So I'd be going there. So I was always... So your travel's basically penis-driven? Penis-driven, yes. Yeah. A lot of it was penis-driven when you put it that way, being a guy. Yeah. And I didn't... It's not a trap. It's a good trap to go into to say, I'm going to Halifax. I'm going to do Edmonton. Right. But if I was making cash in Paris or if I met a girl in Barcelona or in Bern or in Lübeck in Germany, that's what I would do. So you also spent a lot of time in Paris. Yes. The best pitch in the world for me. It was. And that beats Manly before it got filled in. You know the big hole in the ground? Right. Where Zip and Zap used to do? Uh Uh-huh. Manly, that was some pitch, walking along a pavement, then you look down, and you've got this massive space with all the steps. Manly's Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sydney. Uh, It's a great pitch, but for me, the Pompidou, Paris, that's where I made the most cash, Paris. The home of mime, white gloves. Yeah, Paris is a beautiful place. I remember... I actually started busking in Paris in 1987. You started there? Yeah, I started on the metro juggling three balls. I was a little hippie juggler. Wow. I know. In fact, I think... You had hair then? I had hair. I had long hair. Wow. And uh, I think I was actually playing bongos to start off with, and then I progressed to playing three balls. On the metro? Yeah, to juggling three balls. And how many stops before you hired it? We just stood there in the tunnel. We were really that bad. But so not on not on the actual actual yeah. you were at a station. Yeah, but we we pretty much progressed after like two days, and then we went to started to do the terraces. Right, doing did terraces. you do the terraces? Oh Jesus, have a terraces nightmare at the Cannes Film Festival. That's all you could do uh-huh. was terraces, and there'd be about three or four guitarists, and then it'd be me, and they would do a terrace, and you'd have to wait for maybe half an hour before you got a different people. Some of the people listening to this might not actually understand what a terrace is. Do you want to explain how to busk a terrace? Or not how to busk a terrace. Even what a terrace is? Basically, a terrace is lots of people sitting at tables outside a restaurant outside a cafe and if it's a big cafe it's a big terrace you would set up facing them play your songs do your act to 50 60 people all sitting down having a coffee or having a meal which can be a bit awkward to hat people when they're having a meal and do your stuff maybe 20, half an hour, and then go and hat people that are having the coffee. Literally walking around to each table individually. Yes. Yeah, I still remember doing it myself. Yeah, yeah. doing terraces. Yeah, that was a great time, actually. It's a learning curve. It's yeah. called experience. It's, that is one of the few things you can't buy. You can't buy experience. You've no. got to learn, and it's, you know... And, of course, you've got a captive audience as well. Yeah, they don't move. Yeah. They can't move. Yeah. Well, they can, but they're having a, a coffee, a meal. I can't remember where that place was. Um, you used to walk from over Notre Dame, over the bridge, and then there was a, a little group of 
three terraces in the middle, and that seemed it was kind of a vaguely Lebanese district. Mm-hmm. Just up from Saint Michel, yeah. Just up from Saint Michel, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And we all used to congregate there, mm-hmm. and that used to be the best terrace for some reason. I don't know. Right? Yes, yes. I, I don't know. Did why. that a few times? Yeah, that was the first terrace I ever did, and I think that was after I'd been performing for five days. But I think really I was just collecting the money. I was the bottler. But bottler, uh, I guess. And talking about that, uh, I, I remember just to name drop here. Uh, Gareth, the mighty Gareth, he TMG. used, TMG used yeah. to bottle for me at Covent Garden. Did he really? He was my bottler. And what what, what year was that? Mm. Let's go back to eighty six, Anna. Nineteen eighty six. It must be eighty six. Oh, yeah. And TMG used to. Can I bottle for you? <laughs> and I used to use a bottler in Paris. Yeah. And the deal was two thirds for me, and you get a third. Right. The best people to bottle for you were obviously females, eh? Yeah. The sexer, the female, the more cash. But I had this bottler in Paris who could speak five languages. Wow. Basically hassle people for cash in five different languages. And he was a great bottler. Not just that, he was a personal trainer. Right. And if he took his shirt off, this guy would get an edge. Because of his muscles and his physique. Excellent. He was from California. He was a personal trainer. I've never seen a guy get an edge by just taking his shirt off, but he did. But this guy was your bottler. Yeah, and he kept his shirt on. And after a couple of weeks, this guy was making... He was making about £80 a day. £80 a day from me. And then he suddenly went, Silver, I'm worth more. And we were in a cafe counting the cash. I went, okay then. I'll tell you what, I'll see you here in this cafe tomorrow at the same time. Right. And we'll see what happens. Okay, okay. And it turned out I actually made more cash without the bottler. Instead of me making, say, £120 right. and he gets 80 I made 130 And his face just went, shit, I've just given up £80 a day. I mean, yeah. you see, without you, I'm making more cash. Right. Now, do you want a bottle from me? Which takes the pressure off me. Yeah. So he got his job back. Did you ever have a problem asking for money? No, because I started off, it was just, I had, it was a towel with two pairs of trainers and two big McDonald cups inside the shoes. And people used to drop. So that was, so I was isolated, man. (laughs) This was what, how did I put it? Instead of a hat, a towel with two pairs of shoes with two big cut and people used to fill the shoes. Right. That's That was my first. So, no, it was just passed by to drop the cash. So, in. were your shoes silver back then? No. When did you start spraying your shoes? It would be in Edinburgh when I first started. It was just an old pair of baths, an old pair of trainers. Yeah. And because I had the silver face, and I thought it would be a good idea just to spray my sh- shoes. Right. And that's become a bit of a trademark. Well, it is. And every pitch you go to, you can usually find where you've been just by the outline of the silver shoes. Yeah, and one of my favourite stories there was uh, TMG. Uh, He was passing through Belgium. 
mm-hmm. and he stopped off to do a show and he didn't know where to do a show. Right. And he saw a pair of silver footprints spray painted on and he went, this is the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> you knew where the pitch was by the silver sh- the silver wonderful. footprints. That's wonderful. So we're talking in the late 80s still. Yeah. I remember the first person I ever saw to do a massive, massive show was a guy called the Fat Man. Mm-hmm. And everybody was a little bit scared of the Fat Man. The Fat Man in uh, Paris. In Paris. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about him? Because you actually knew him fairly well. Yeah, because I was commuting between Amsterdam and Paris, and yeah. the Fat Man would basically, he didn't control the Pompidou pitch, but he he no one could do a show while Ludo was doing a show. Yeah, and he used to work down in the pit. Didn't he? No, he was at the top. He was at, at the, the top. Start. It's like, okay, halfway down. When I down. saw him, he was down in the pit and there were people watching from around the edge. Yeah, not at the bottom, maybe halfway yeah, up. About and he, he would fill the slope and you had the, yeah. up the top. Yeah. And he would, basically, he would do a bed of nails. But his right. show would take two hours sometimes. Yeah, but it wasn't just him, was it? No, he had an assistant called Philippe and... To, to spread it out to an hour and a half, Philippe was an escape artist. Yeah. And Ludo, during the show, would get two people out and basically tie Philippe up with chains. Yeah. And once they got the padlock on, tied them up as tight as you could get them, yeah. they would go back into the audience. He would get on with the show and Philippe would attempt and get out of the chains so what he'd just leave him yes he would he would still be there move back a bit and Ludo would carry on with the knives and the bed of nails meanwhile just to the side of him Philippe would be twisting and turning because I mean most escape artists that I know who get chained up I mean it's just a trick the hardest part is you know keeping the chains on yeah and one of the best memories I've ever seen, because Ludo, yeah, he, he was not commandeering, he was in control, and he was very loud, and he that was, was, really that loud, was yeah. the main thing, was this bark, bark, and he used to get an edge, and he used to just shout at people, it was, it was like a bear standing up, and when he walked, you felt as if the ground should move, but it didn't. He was like a big bear. Growl. He used to growl at everyone. So that was his personality. That was his show. And the people were tying Philip up. And Ludo, he goes, hey, not tight enough. And yeah. he goes up and he starts to tighten the chains on Philip. Really? And you know, he had the chains going up between his groin. And, oh, yeah. and I just felt and. Ludo pulled the chains and he had it around his neck and yeah, I could just see that Philip he was in trouble. Yeah. His fucking balls were starting to swell up. His <laughs> neck, his face was getting red. I mean, if he wasn't in a show, people would have called an ambulance. <laughs> and and Philip was rolling about the floor, took him about forty five minutes to get out. Right. And I spoke to Philip, I mean, hey, I mean, why does he do that? He goes, Hey, it's Ludo, yeah? And so he was getting paid by him. And Ludo being Ludo, the fat man. And Philippe's balls were fucking swelling up and I just felt for him. And he really was escaping. He's, right. So it was a genuine escape. Oh, fuck yeah, man. Oh, wow. wow. It really was full on. Oh. But that didn't happen every show. The volunteers would tie him up. Yeah. 
I'm waiting for him to finish. That was a big thing about Ludo. I pissed him off a few times because there were so many people. There was enough for two or three shows. No, it's, hey, Silver, you don't start before me. And I said, but I didn't affect your audience, affect your crowd. I got a show off. I made cash. <laughs> grill, 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 grill. But he was okay after he got to know you. So anybody else you remember from Paris who was particularly... Oh, Roland Swicker. And if you say that name to Les Bob, he will start to change colour and clench his fists. I didn't know that, but I actually ended up sharing a flat with Roland Swigger, uh-huh. who was from Brazil, who was at Lecoq. Yeah. And it turns out, um, 15 years afterwards, having a chat with Les, that they shared a flat together. Oh, really? Unbelievable. And then Les was getting more angry about why, because... I walked in and he was playing my tapes. He used to study Les. <laughs> Les with a suitcase, freeze frame and all this stuff. Yeah. You say the name to Roland to Les Bob and, and we used to share a flat together. So I, I remember him. Then there was a performer called Kim who was Chinese. He was very tall, black hair, get five people out, used to hip, used to put them in a trance, right. that sort of thing, with his stool pigeon at the end. Now, Kim used to do massive shows. So you had that first guy, Roland, you had Kim, and that was my passage of, I think my passage of rights, that I could actually go down there, and it was me that so was doing the big shows. We're talking kind of like 86 to 89? No, no. no probably 92-ish. Oh, because 92-ish. don't forget, Roland was on that pitch for two or three years. Kim right. was on that pitch for two or three years. And it was a, a passage of rights that I could go down there and I would pull off the big shows. And that was great to remember. So we were talking about uh, one of the acts that you'd seen that was uh, made the most impression on you or yeah. impressed you the most. And it was you pop, said... Pop Dreams. Pop Dreams. Pop Dreams were the, the first street act that I saw that I went, oh my God, this is the best thing I have ever, ever seen. And I was doing shows at Leal in Paris, and to get to the Pompidou, you've got to cross a really busy road. Yeah. And I had done maybe one or two half-hour shows, the Silver Face, and I popped across the Pompidou just to see what was happening, was there a space, and basically down at the bottom, there were six guys all in pyjamas with the paisley pattern stuff. Yeah. Uh, one white guy, five black guys, and they were just walking about doing jack shit. And the circle they had, everyone was sitting down, and it must have been about twenty, but everyone was sitting down. Yeah. So I come down, going, "What's happening?" And I look down there, and there's a massive circle. Everyone is sitting down, stretched way back, and there was just six guys walking about. Right. <gasps> I just, I don't know if I caught the atmosphere. I, I got the vibe. I meant, shit, man, I'm sitting here. Yeah. I've got a stuff. Someone's looking after my stuff. <gasps> and I just sat there and went, something's good going to happen. Yeah. I don't, I didn't know what it was. I just went, wow. And then suddenly the music started. I mean, ah. what happened was they all stood in a circle. Someone turned on the music and boom, boom. And they'll just 
they all started to walk in a circle in slow motion. Right. Very slow, very slow, very slow. I mean, wow, on the paisley and the wind and their fabric was flowing, walking in a circle in slow motion. And then suddenly it unfolded one, bumped into the other. They were having an argument. You all oh, slow motion. Then they ended up in a gunfight, back to back, uh-huh. bang. And the music to go with it was fantastic. Took me years to get it, and it's actually by Tangerine Dream live in Poland. And it's it's the first track, and it really builds up. Slow beginning, quite a choice of music. And they have this gunfight. One gets killed. The man goes, "Oh no!" Pumps his heart, comes back together. And it blew me out of the water. That was pop dreams. And pop dreams were really big on the street for three or four years, getting gigs, being sent there. And one of my personal highlights was uh, I got to know them. I got them a couple of gigs. And one of my biggest, when you feel, ah, I've made it was the two of them. There was a guy called Langsam, uh-huh. which is German for slow. Right. And Pascal, they said, uh, I was in Bordeaux trying to busk, and they came up to me and Silver, can we do a show with you? I went, ah, what, you want to work with me? Oh, how do you do your hands? And they were asking me questions. Well, how did I do this? How did I move my body? And they were wanting to know how to put my hand, do my head. I went, fuck's sake, man, Pop Dreams want to dance with me, and they're asking me questions. Wow. And that was another rites of passage. I was like, whoa, it blew me out of the water. Wow. Pop Dreams. No, never heard of them. And you didn't, and you, and you didn't see them? Nope. Because they all had jobs. They all had proper jobs. Yeah. And Pop Dreams and Pascal, they say, hey, Silver, uh, how can you survive? I'm going, well, I do four or five shows a day. Yeah. I'm working five, six days a week. But they all had jobs. So they would be busking on a Saturday and Sunday. This is in Paris. Yeah, yeah. and they didn't really move from Paris. Yeah, sorry, we're talking about Let's Yeah, Yeah. they were the first street act that blew me away. I mean, Paris was just full of buskers. Yeah, one of my favourite cities in the world. Right, but you've also worked um, as Ramblers in Barcelona. Yeah. So tell us a bit about that. Whoa, uh... Ramblers was this big street in Barcelona, and it was a free-for-all. You'd have about three Peruvian bands with their big PAs. You'd have about 50 statues. And basically, you'd have to try and find a space. Yeah, this you'd, must be the early 90s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. You'd have to try and find a space and then try and do a show with all the mayhem that was happening around you. Right. And then it became... The home of statues, this big ship, 50 statues or something. Yeah, they banned statues from it now. Yeah, and they've banned them in Rome because it's become the new Peruvians, I think. They're like a virus, a plague. Right. Uh, It's now all Romanians and basically beggars who haven't got cash. You get a costume, you stand still, and in Rome, every corner you turn would be a centurion. Right. Every bloody corner would be a centurion. Oh, when in Rome. When in Rome, and now it's got to the point where the Romanians are buying a big, massive suit. They'll get there at 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh-huh. 12 o'clock, their brother comes along. He does 12 till 4. Then their cousin does, you know, 4 till 10. And they just stay there all day. Right. And that's what's happening. And to be there at the beginning of how statues started, that was interesting. It was like... 
these guys that spray paint. Right. And this, for me, the beginning of statues was, you had beggars in Paris, so I was constantly moving between Covent Garden, Amsterdam, Paris, Brussels. I was always constantly moving, and I just saw this gradual thing happening, and I saw it mostly in Paris. Yeah. People that were used to be beggars, professional beggars, I would go back and they were a statue. So instead of sitting down and making £20 a day, yeah. buy a suit and stand up and make £100 a day. Right. Why sit down when I can stand up and make lots of cash? Yeah. So that's how statues started, basically. Right. The commercial ones. Okay, there's people. I stood still for 13 hours, Guinness Book of World Records. I'm well aware of that. But what we know as statues today yeah. started with beggars. And the other one is the spray painting. You know the spray painting? Uh-huh. I got to know this beggar back in Paris again. And next time I saw him, he was making a fortune spray painting. Really? Wait, wow. Last time I saw you, you had your hat. He goes, yeah, man. I paid this guy 50 francs. I paid this guy five pound. And in one day, he showed me how to put a plate there cover it with spray paint, put a plate there, just score it there, and I learned how to do these space-age planets in in a day. So that beggar became a street spray painter sort of thing. Oh, that's nicer. Oh, yeah. I'm not slagging him. I'm just saying that this guy learned it in one day. Last time I saw him, he was begging. Next time I see him, he was spray painting. Right. And now you live in Edinburgh. Can we rephrase that? I'm back in Edinburgh. Oh, you're back in Edinburgh. I was outside the UK for 20 years. I'm back in Edinburgh. Back in Edinburgh. Wow. That was not my end game at all. No way. Sorry, bad one. Well, I don't think the end game has quite happened yet. No, no. You don't have end games when you're 25, young, free and single, and the world is at your feet. You don't have an end game. Uh Uh-huh. But I'm back in Edinburgh, and my wife, Joanna, an amazing girl... Ended up in Bordeaux, and when Finlay, my son, was one and a half, I'm outside the kitchen window having a fag, and Joanna, I don't know if Finlay was sleeping, or he's one and a half, and she had a tear, she was crying. Right. And I'm going, what's wrong? And she just put, things aren't working out. And because we'd been in Bordeaux, and before street performing became a big, big kind of thing, it was against the law to perform in Bordeaux. Really? Against the law. Before statues, before that, against the law. Okay. Bordeaux's bourgeoisie is rich, no performing. And it's that extreme that when I was staying there, there was this beautiful violin guy. You're walking down the big streets. You could hear the echo. You had the sheep music out classically trained and he was always there right and we were pushing the pram and walking about and he wasn't there so John and I pushing the pram and he's in another part of Bordeaux and because I can't speak French I got Joanna to go up and ask him why isn't he at his usual pitch it turns out the police came confiscated the stuff right and he had to pay a 200 pound fine For playing classical music. Shit, man, I was a boombox, loud music, hip-hop, let's get this thing going. I had no chance. So I had to go up to Paris on a Friday, work Paris, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and come back to Bordeaux. That's a long way. Yeah, £80 train fares, uh, probably £100 now, and Joanna was crying. 
things aren't working out, they've got no money. So I casually went, we can move to Paris. Oh, it's too big, and it's too expensive. Uh-huh. So I went, let's move back to London. Oh, I hate the underground. I don't want to move there. I went, shit, man, okay then, let's move. And she just went, don't even say the word. I went, oh, shit, that's Amsterdam out the window. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I met Joanna when she was 19. Yeah. Back in the dam. Oh, yeah. And, uh, don't even, I didn't even say Amsterdam, but she said, don't even say it. Why is that because of Finlay? Finlay, I don't know. You would have to ask her why she didn't want to move to Amsterdam. So I'm having a fight going, I've just given you the opportunity to move to three of the most happening, kicking cities in Europe. You've turned down Paris, you've turned down Amsterdam, you've turned down London, and I'm suddenly going, where else can I go? Where else can I take my family? And just for something to say, I went, Edinburgh, that'll do. I went, oh shit, man. So we moved back to Edinburgh. And it's turned out very good for Joanna because she couldn't speak English, uh-huh. moved to Scotland. Uh, and she doesn't have to. But the, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, she went to school, she learned English. Then the next year, she passed an English exam that sixteen-year-olds do at school. Okay, and she didn't stop for ten years. And two years ago, she got a degree. Yeah. So it's been a good move for Finlay and for Joanna, but for me personally, you know, uh-huh. being there and in the loop, happening, performing. But you still like the festival? Yeah, I live in Edinburgh, so I don't have. To to travel, I don't have to pay for accommodation. I do that. I've done it. But you've always come back for the festival. That when I lived in Amsterdam, it was the only time I went home. Yeah. For three weeks. Right. I didn't come back for my mum's birthday, for my dad's. I didn't do Christmas. So the only time I went back home yeah. was for the Edinburgh Festival, and it finished on a Sunday. I'd be in Covent Garden on the Tuesday. Right. Or I'd be back in Amsterdam. It was three weeks, and I was straight out like yeah. everybody else. Okay. Uh, and I, I guess you've seen the whole festival like change and morph into like the big monster of street performing that it is now. Yeah, well, am I jumping the gun here? No, I? you go ahead. Go ahead. From queuing up with Cowboy and Shep up the high street. But you must remember well before Shep and Shane. Right? Yes, but you're, this is one of the strongest memories I have. Is It was up on the high street... It was actually two bus stops, and you would get there at half past seven, quarter to eight, and you'd pick a stop. And I remember sitting there at quarter to eight, there was me, Shep, and Cowboy, and someone else just sitting there having fags and having a smoke. Yeah. And uh, that was how he did it. Well, well, the high street, when did the high street get closed the first time? That I can't remember. Because I remember watching Shane do like eight shows <laughs> on the high street. And yeah. I, did, I mean, I did like four and it was just monster. And Shane just kept going and going and going. And yeah. he did at least eight shows that day. Yes. But we all did. I mean, there were like, I don't know how many of us there were on the high street that day. That was the year before it was regulated. Okay, there was quite a few. And yeah. you did queue up. You got there at did half we past. Queue up? Well, you. We didn't we even got have there early. We could just go next to each other, as yes, I remember. Yes, but to get that space, you'd have to be there at half seven, yeah. quarter to eight. You'd have to be there early. Yes, and just pump out your shows, as they say. Yeah. Pump them out. 
And what happened to the Meadows as well on uh, Fringe Sunday? Because that used to be glorious. That was massive. Fringe yeah. Sunday was brilliant. And as a child, being nine, ten, my parents, that was probably the only thing that I actually went to as somebody from Edinburgh, being a school kid, was the fireworks and Fringe Sunday. The whole of Edinburgh used to go for Fringe Sunday. And not the highlights, one of the things that was always there was when you walked into the park, there was two guys. They would be dressed as policewomen. Oh, yeah. And they were they were part... I mean, they didn't do a thing. They were at, on the edge, the car park. And they weren't performers. God knows who these guys were. But every year, there'd be two guys dressed up as policewomen, Fringe Sunday, massive. It gave the students, people doing shows, to advertise their shows. And the performers would go up there and do the spaces between the stages. Yeah. And maybe two at a time, go back to back. Fringe Sunday was massive. I remember. Yeah, and then yeah. they changed it to the pedos and let everything else with people, cities, pubs, clubs, things change. Yeah. And Fringe Sunday just changed. So what do you think of the younger performers that come up to uh, Edinburgh? It's just a polite way of talking about generic shows. Uh, uh, did I mention any jugglers on sticks? <laughs> on sticks with a wheel at the bottom. Oh, no, I wouldn't even go that far. Danger. Danger. Three fire torches. Ooh, generic. Yeah, let's talk about generic shows for a while then. Wow, where do, I, where do I begin? Where would you like me to well, begin? Well, I mean, one of the great things that you said when you first arrived is, I can't believe they put this in the programme. Relief. Silver does not juggle. And that's in the programme here at the festival. Yeah, it's the first time I don't know. It's great, isn't it? It's wonderful. Silver does not juggle. Silver does not juggle. And I can understand where you're coming from. I mean, as, as a mime, sitting on pitches for 30 years, having to follow jugglers all the time, if you're not into it, then oh, it must be... Yeah, and at last year's Edinburgh Festival, I suppose... It's out there, silver doesn't like juggling, but that's not true. I encourage Finlay to juggle, I mm-hmm. coordination, I like juggling. And probably one thing about Haggis is he posts a lot of black and white stuff. Right. And it's great to see things from the 50s and the 60s. I don't have a circus background, not a performer, but I like the black and white stuff. Uh, and I'm standing there, Finlay was doing the uh, doing the... Diablo, and this Japanese, Chinese guys were doing something with Diablo, and I'm standing with this Aussie guy, needless to say, he was a juggler, what else is there on the street? Oh yeah, there's people with straight jackets, but anyway, he's a juggler, and I'm standing there, I'm watching a show, and as soon as they put down the Diablo and they picked up the balls, I started to walk off. Right. Now, I didn't really know this guy goes, I mean... Jay Silver, you really don't like juggling. I mean, no, it's not that I don't like juggling. It's it's like going in and turning on a TV, and then you turn the TV on again, and it's the same station, same show, and the next week you turn the TV on, one year. I've been watching the same TV station for nearly 30 years. And for nearly 30 years, that's why... But as soon as he started to pick up the balls, I walked off. Right. It's not that I don't like juggling. It's like watching the same television station for 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. And it's only when something goes wrong with the telly and something unexpected happens, that's when I pay attention. Right. Okay. So we've been to Edinburgh. 
We've been to Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Who was your favourite ex in Amsterdam? I mean, you were you lived in Amsterdam. That was most of you. Ten years. Yeah, ten years of your life. No one. Can you remember any of it? Of course, the Flying Dutchmen were probably the best. Right. Yeah. Biggest. Who were also the best. At this festival. Yeah, it was so great to bump in, and I haven't seen them for so many years. And sharing a pitch with them, great. There was no music, no, no boombox, no big sound system. So they jugglers. I know. And they ride unicycles. Yes. But this was before statues and generic shows. Okay. This was before before beggars went, right, he does this, and you've got people that take notes, Uh put a rope out. And a lot of these acts now, who are very successful, and some of them are here, it's like painting by numbers. If you've never seen a picture... Yeah. And you're shown a picture, and you go, "Wow, that's good. it's called the Mona Lisa. Really, that's fantastic. I'm making a fortune from this." And then you find out he's painted it by numbers. Shit. So number one is red. Get a rope out. Number two is blue. Color that blue in. That's crack a whip. Number three is shout free beer. Oh, that's a green. Paint it there. And at the end of the show, what started off as a blank canvas is a beautiful picture. Now, if you know that picture has been painted by numbers, Uh what do you think? It's a piece of shit. You've got no talent. Not one thing from that picture came from your imagination. Not one thing came from your heart. Not one thing came from experience. Nothing. It's paint by numbers. I mean, some people today, that's... The show, whether it's straight jackets, unicycles, they have learned it. It's like painting by numbers. I've got no respect, I've got no time, and I'm sorry. You're making loads of cash, you're very successful, you're making more cash than me, and you've got the point where people in straight jackets are now higher up. Oh, they're on poles now. No, no, we haven't even covered poles, have we? The higher you up, the more cash you make. Uh, it's not necessarily true, I think. But no, so, okay. Uh, I think that's the formula they, th- they think is going to work, yeah. Oh, but look, it says the instructions, number six, when you paint the green, the higher you get. Yeah. That. Come on, there's people painting by that's numbers right. here, yeah, I guy. agree with you They're entirely. painting by numbers. Yeah. I mean, people paint a picture from their heart and their soul. It's personal. And you've got people... You know, the first person that comes to mind is Bill... Like Tony. Um, We're talking about Tony Living Space. Yeah. Yeah. We go out there and the best part of our our, our shows is we don't know what's going to happen. Shit, the music stopped. Wow, let's go. And we make it happen. So you'd say your own show, you've come up with all of that yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And there's maybe two standard things that I'll do that are standard. Like I'll do the balloon. Right. And out my whole, I'll do 45. I'll do the balloon for two minutes, three minutes. Yeah. And apart from that, what else do you think is standard? Well, no, nothing. Show? I mean, the bit that I love the best, and I have to be, is when the, the cigarette. Oh, the that's, whole cigarette. that's no PC. That's on PC now. That, well, mean, it is on PC, but it's beautiful. I remember seeing you do it at Glastonbury and just thinking that is just perfect for the situation. Just the whole thing, the yeah. cigarette turns into the joint and you just slowly fall apart and it's just it's just glorious to watch it really is but again it's not good it doesn't make cash it's funny it's original it came from my head came from my heart came Uh from my soul and it's original it's not painting by numbers it's not generic but it's on PC and I'm not doing that here I can't do it here 
No. And now I'm dropping that. I'm actually stopping that. Why it's, are you dropping it though? In you think people are just turned off. But by smoking's smoking. bad. Smoking's silly. Let's be. But the fact is, there's other ways to start a show. Um, a show has constantly evolved and constantly changed. Right. And I think then you, you come across certain things that work, so you stick with it. And in between the certain things that work you improvise and you do stuff. So yeah. I've, I've kept that and it works in certain things. But here, no. And yesterday, uh, part of a show, I've got two ways to finish uh-huh. and I chose plan B and plan B is I stab myself Ooh. with this fake joke knife in slow motion and I give my heart to the audience right. after the show someone would say great show but don't stab yourself I mean that's fine that's cool about me I said so don't give my heart to the audience no uh, okay no, it's not just me. Can you not there just was, give your heart to yes, the Yes, that's what I did on the show afterwards. I ripped my heart open right. to give my heart to the audience. And then I fall down dead because I don't have a heart. Yeah. They are kind of conservative. Shit, man, I'm not, paying, I'm not <laughs> paying my numbers here. No, no, goodness gracious. So, um, you're very good friends with Tony Livingspace. Very good friends. I would say one of my closest friends. Yeah. Did you get any funny stories about Tony? That you can repeat? Well, you can repeat anything here. We're amongst friends. Yeah, uh, generally not one in particular because there's so many and they all just come together. It's just basically, we, we, we called ourselves the Martini Brothers. Oh, we did. never worked together, but we called ourselves the Martini Brothers. Anytime, any place, anywhere. We'd be sh- we've shared pitches all over the world, uh-huh. and we'd be sitting there with the other performers, and me and Tony would be looking at each other going, showtime, showtime, and all the other performers go, there's not enough people, it's not half past seven, I can't do this, and me and Tony would go, well, that's right. painting by, that's again, that's painting by numbers. Yes, like, oh, and me and Tony would go, right, is it you or me? Anytime, anyplace, anywhere, which isn't being big-headed, it was just a catchphrase we came up with, because we'd be constantly sharing pictures with these other Paint by number performers, and there's Hotcha. He's written a book. I mean, Hotcha's a sound guy. David Castle. Yeah, David Castle. He's got in his book that if you don't have more than eight people that pass it in sixty seconds, you can't do a show. I disagree with that, and so would Tony. It's not a formula. Well, I I mean, I remember watching Paddy was the the master of that. Paddy going out and doing those 10, 40 shows at Covent Garden in the morning where there would be nothing. Yeah. And he'd go out with his tiny little case. And literally, you remember? Yes. I mean, that was so good. And Mm. no microphone or anything. And he would just literally pull one at a time and finish off. No microphone, no flips. No loud music. Yeah. Just go out with a wee tiny suitcase. How big was that suitcase, you think? I mean... As maybe the size of two shoes together. Yeah, I mean, 12 inches by, even not yeah. even 12 inches by 8 inches. It's a very small suitcase. That's it, and that was his whole show. Yeah. And, you know, look at it today. I mean, everybody goes out with these huge amplifiers. Or, I mean, the amplifiers are getting smaller, but... They're getting loud. Yeah, and... Technology-wise, yeah. great stuff. And you need nothing, and... I mean, Pepe as well. Pepe used to go out with mm-hmm. very little. And you must have seen Pepe do some shows. Of course. When he was in his heyday as well. In, in his heyday, yeah. Before it all went um, 
pear shaped as they would say. I mean, it's it's not part of it. Can be part of the performing game when uh, you're so free and you're making so much money. Right. Who says you can't have a beer at half past two? You don't have an office to go back to. You've worked at half past twelve. I'm having a beer at half past two. Well, we always used to have breakfast together. We used to have breakfast together. Yeah, we did. Nice breakfast. It was a lovely breakfast. And I remember being in a pub with Pepe and this kind of stranger guy. He was going, oh, I have no money. And he didn't have cash. And Pepe just went and gave him like 30 or 40 pounds. Yeah. And the guy goes, oh. Wow, thanks, man. That's unbelievable. Can you afford it? He goes, I'm getting more of that stuff tomorrow. Just have it. That was Pepe's attitude. I'm getting more of that stuff tomorrow. Bang, 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 bang. So when you have that much money, whether we're talking about superstars, rock stars, famous, funny people, Robin Williams being an alcoholic, being a cocaine addict, you can understand. Because if you've had so much time in your hands, you mean so much money... It's half past two. Oh, I've got to go back to the office. Oh, people don't start to drink alcohol until seven o'clock. It's like, fuck you, man. It's half two. I do what I want. I'm an individual. Yeah. And if that becomes a problem, and that's what happened to Pepe. Yeah. He would start drinking at half past eight in the morning and didn't stop, became an alcoholic, and he is what he is now. He's actually looking a little bit better last time I saw him. Well, the word on the street was Pepe had died. And for some reason, Pepe was in Edinburgh. And I would bump into Pepe. And I remember it was Christmas Eve. And so he just stayed after the festival? It, yes. And this it was, was only like two years ago? No, I'm going back seven or eight years ago. Really? It's, it's Christmas Eve. And it's Edinburgh. I'd finished. Yeah. And I had turned a corner and I'd go to a pub to get changed, to take the silver face off. Yeah, and they said and the Pepe, Pepe was, Yeah, Pepe was selling the big issue. And he had two left. Higher silver, higher silver. I went, oh, hi, Pep. And the fact is, I didn't want Pep to come into the pub with me. Right. Because he looked really scruffy and he did look bad. I went, Pep, I'll be back in a second. Yeah, sure, silver, silver. Pepe is selling the big issue on a street corner Christmas yeah, Eve up shame. in Scotland. Wow. So what I did was I quickly got changed and I went to Sainsbury's, got a six-pack of beer yep. and some food and bought them two packs of fags. So when I came back, I went, Pep, it's Christmas Eve, kind of, but there you go. Right. And I gave him, oh, thanks, silver, thanks, silver. And people thought you died. Yeah. And I just had to... Put on the internet. I think it was just starting. And, you know, it was getting big. That I actually saw Pepe three days ago, and he's not dead. There must be some people you remember who doing great shows back in the day in Amsterdam. Dirty Fred. I mean, it's oh, Dirty Fred. But he's like a ghost. He just turns up. He's he's everywhere. For people that and may nowhere. not know what Dirty Fred or may not know Dirty Fred's show at all. Uh-huh. So, do you want to just briefly explain exactly what he does? Briefly, exactly. Because he's certainly not painting by numbers. Oh, no, 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 of course not. That's why people know and people talk about him. Tell us a bit about what Dirty Fred's show is all about. Uh, not giving a fuck. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> not giving a fuck, being rude, taking things too far, telling really bad, inappropriate jokes about, like, Frankie Boyle. People laugh, but they shouldn't be laughing. Yeah. Uh, He'll be in Germany and he'll be dressed up in a full combat American 
commander of the army yeah. and just slag Germany, that sort of thing. That's full on. That takes a lot of guts and skill and get away with it. Yeah, so and we Dirty s- Fred does it. Yeah. Very much I mean, so. I've seen him do brown shows. I've seen him do high wire acts. He's got the whole shebang and he can turn, well, this pitch to that, this pitch to that. I'll do the high wire acts. I'll do this. Yeah. Dirty Fred. Not make my jaw drop. But go, wow, you just didn't... What the d- fuck are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> you're not going to do that. Well, is that why you get called Dirty Fed? Respect, dude, respect. Really that, yeah, yeah, man, did you really come out with that in front of this audience? You must be joking. Yeah. That was brilliant. So who else? Uh, I, Nick Nicholas. Nick's great. He, yes, and to think that he was doing full-on circle shows. If you see past the hat, you'll see Nick Nicholas doing a circle show, being tied up, straight jacket. I mean, the amount of people out there that's do your painting by numbers, have a look at Nick Nicholas doing a circle show, uh, getting tied up. Massive circle shows, and then going back to go, nah, screw that. Cups and balls. Yeah. Nick yeah. Nicholas doing cups and balls, and yet he was kicking it large on circle shows with a straight jacket. I think, you know, the ultimate performer's performer is Brian. Oh, Brian. Brian, yeah. Reed. Who doesn't make cash. Yeah, he and makes doesn't... nothing at all, yeah. but he is the best as far as we're all concerned. <laughs> and the <laughs> fact is that yeah. you would go out your way to, oh, Brian's going to do a show. You'd but so and so's in a show, so what? I can tell you exactly when and what he's going to say, when and where. Yeah. But because he's coming up with new material and Brian does not paint by numbers, and Brian, Brian's got a sponge. Brian's got a sponge yeah. across the canvas. Yeah. That's that's the best way. Brian has got a sponge. He sees the wee spaces. No rope, and he just proof, and he comes up with some really, really good shit. Amazing. Shit. Yeah, but does he make money? No. <laughs> is his hat big? No. Is he successful? No. But has he got respect from his peers? Yes. yes. So you've Massive. got to weigh up. Do you want to have £250 hats, £300 hats, you're on a unicycle, or do you want to make 40 quid and other performers go, he's your man? So would you say that today's performers or the younger generation of performers we've got coming up now, they're all a little no, they're Sterile? all painting by numbers. Yeah, no, they don't take enough Generic. risks. No risk because it's money. Yeah. That's the whole thing. It all boils down to money. When you're a professional street performer, it all boils down to cash. And yeah. in the old days at Covent Garden, you'd have 20 acts yeah. and you'd have 20 people that went out onto a pitch and did different shit. Well, people are doing it. I mean, back then people were doing it just for the art. Yes, the that's where I was going. Good shows yeah. and bad shows in the old days, back then, people would come off and say, that was a good show, that went well. And what they meant was, the audience was good, a kid came out and did something that was unexpected, they dealt with it, they got a laugh, and it was a good show. Right. Nowadays, the performers who are 25 and all that, they come off and go, hmm, the hat's not too heavy, that wasn't a good show. Yeah. Wow. And that's a fact. A good show means a good hat. Not that they came up with new ideas. Well, I think not that they judge themselves now by the amount of money they make. You're as good as your picture. Uh, yeah. And that's just, it's, it's soulless, I think. I'm sorry, yeah. yeah. And not to repeat, 
uh, Tony again. I really felt from maybe two years ago yeah. because he's in Australia, his old years ill, blah, blah. And he posted just this one sentence on Boast Book and it was, I should have treated it as a business years ago. Yeah. And I find myself in the same position. And the people, I don't, want, I don't want to say names here, but treating it as a business. Yeah. There's some people out there that don't. Uh, but the people that are up and coming and that are quite well known... Those people are getting few and far between the people that don't treat it as a business. There's not many of us left. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a real tragedy. Well, if you want to... If you're an agent, whips and free beer, and you've landed, take your parachute off, this kind of thing. My God, man. It's it's, it's like being in a psychiatric ward. Right. And you can't escape until you leave the pitch. Yeah. I mean, there's Bike Boy. He's got a BMX show, and to find out, this is how crazy and mental it's got. You've got a guy, Sean, Bike Boy, and he's got a BMX show. Yeah. Covent Garden, travels, gets a van. And to find out, he ends up on a pole. How can you do a street bicycle BMX show and he ends up on a pole everybody who wants to make cash who's in it for the cash and the only reason they're in the game is for the cash get yourself up a pole I mean if Pop the Balloon Man could make balloons it'd be up a pole yeah Get yourself up a pole. Get up the pole. Get up the pole, dudes. If you want to make money... Get up the number pole. Number one is green. Number two is blue. Number three is a shaded colour. You fill in the spaces and get yourself up a pole. Paint your picture up a pole. Beautiful. I'm starting to raise my voice now. Aren't I? What colour is silver? Oh, sorry, what number is silver? <laughs> eh? What number? Yeah. I don't have numbers. Yeah. That's the thing. When I go out there, the same as with It's like, like at this festival, my soundtrack to my whole show is like one, two, three, four, five, six, nine, nine, ten. I've got ten tracks. You push play and everything should just work in order. But because I've come here, it's all jumbled up. Number one is number six. I've got the elevator. I've got the Michael Jackson. And it's all pickled up. So I've got to go to the assistant with my tablet and go, when I give you a thumbs up, could you push that one there? And I've got a wee list. One, two, three, four. Push number six. The first time push number six. And I love that because they make mistakes. And I'm saying... That's where I will start to enjoy myself. So the first two shots, yeah, they've paused it, they've rewinded it, and I've got the crowd laughing because things are going wrong. It's not on the script. I've got to think about that. I'm saying, don't, don't worry. And that's when, not just there, but I enjoy it. Well, it's where the magic happens when things Ex- start to go wrong. When things go wrong. Yeah. And people who we won't say, they don't want things to go wrong. And when things go wrong, they can't handle it. And people like me and Tony just go, let's go. Let's embrace it. <laughs> let's go. Let's but there's mayhem that shouldn't be happening because I won't get a big hat. Uh, yeah. So anything else in particular that you want to like, share with this huge community? The huge community, uh, one of my fondest memories. Now, don't ask for details here, right? Let's just stick with what I'm saying here. Uh, doing the Wellington Festival. I think it was in 92. And there was a big opera on. And I'd never been to an opera. And the opera was St. John the Baptist, where he gets his head cut off. So I went to Nick, 
Nicholas, uh-huh. I went, do you fancy going to the opera? And there was some acid kicking about. Yeah. I always had an evening suit, white shirt, black jacket, black trousers, silver shoes. I went to Nick, do you want to go to this opera? He went, yeah, yeah, let's go for the opera. Uh-huh. And Nick went out and hired an evening suit. <laughs> so I've got a photograph, which yeah. was taken by a Kodak camera, and it was outside the hotel, and we were doing each other's ties up. Yeah, actually on the acid at this point. Yes. Right. Okay. And we were doing that, so he's got the full evening stuff on, mm-hmm. I've got my full evening stuff, we're going to the opera. And I don't know what the opera house is called, there's about 2,000 people, massive, and we get in there, and out of 2,000 people, only two people were in full evening dress. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Nick. Oh, that was some. That was a good opera. There you go. Am I starting to rant here, guys? No, but I do think that our number might be up. Okay, that's the problem. It's Pretty been much. a pleasure to be recognised, and it's a pleasure to switch on a computer, Busker Hall of Fame, and I text my wife, Joanna, last night, I go, oh, I finally made it, I finally made it. I'm on the Busker <laughs> Hall of Fame. Thank you very much, Silva. It's been a pleasure, Guy. Thank you. Peace and love. Peace and love. One love. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. This episode is proudly sponsored by Dolphin Creative, a company dedicated to supporting street theater and all of the amazing performers from this world. Wherever you perform, Dolphin Creative salutes you. For more information, please visit dolphincreative.org and huge thanks to Stuart and his team for sponsoring this episode and six more to come. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content, so thanks in advance for supporting this project. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Simply go to the podcast library, type in stories from the pitch, and download away. And while you're there, please do consider leaving a review and giving us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, Yappy, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And to close things out, a delightful piece of literary trivia to ensure that Silver's impact is felt for generations to come. One of the other great things about you, Silver, is you're the only person I know who is actually mentioned by name in an Irvine Welsh novel. Yes, I know. I don't know Irvin Welsh, and that's not a good claim to fame. But what I don't like is the guy called Silver, who's begging on Princess Street, was a beggar. So whether that's or not, not the line that I remember, the line that I remember, and it's from Train Spotting, is scored a bit of hash from this guy Silver. He's okay. And is that a fact? It's a fact, yeah. So Irvin Welsh scored from him, apparently. That's, that's, that's a clip of fame. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. I must get back to Trainspotting. <laughs> it's there. 
On behalf of myself, Executive Director Lindsay Lindbergh, Guy Collins, who conducted the interview, Kim Potter, who did a brilliant job as recording engineer and first-round editor, Associate Producer Magic Bryan, who took that preliminary edit and polished it up, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. And listen, guys, please don't paint by numbers. Over and out.